Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Downed and denied. President Trump says the U.S. downed an Iranian drone. Iran says it wasn't ours. The age of Azure, Microsoft on cloud nine after some stellar Q2 earnings. And it was the summer of 69, no singing. It's 50 years since Apollo 11 landed on the moon. It's Friday, we made it, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday, where we are celebrating man's first move to the moon. Of course, 50 years. We're going to be talking about space later on in the show. But for now, no moon shoots as far as U.S. stocks are concerned, though it does look like we're going to make solid gains at the open today after a pretty choppy week on Wall Street. Asia did well, of course, too. The Nikkei rallying some 2%. The overriding theme here is his hopes, I think, for more global stimulus, helped along by uh, some confusion, let's call it, from the Federal Reserve yesterday. Let me just explain what happened to you. The head of the New York Fed, John Williams, made some comments that fueled speculation that perhaps we could see a half a percentage point rate cut in July. And the bond market got excited. It started to price a far higher chance of that. In fact, a 70 percent chance. Then the New York Fed walked back on those comments, saying that he was simply speaking theoretically. Remember yesterday, we spoke to voting member Jim Bullard. He said that half a percentage point at this stage looks overdone. And I think we stand by that at this stage. I think that still holds. We'll talk it through later on in the show. But first, there's earnings to get to. So let me mention some of those. Microsoft, as I said, having a very strong quarter. We've also had a few big names like Honeywell, United Health raising guidance here too. Fine. Expectations for this earnings season were really low. But I think the bias so far has been to punish the misses far more than you reward those that beat. Think the banks this week versus Netflix. Perhaps that's natural, though, when stocks are near record highs. Investors are already shooting for the stars here and discounting plenty of risks. And Iran and the tensions there are just one of those risks. Let's get to the drivers, because that's where we start. Iran denying a drone has been downed over the Strait of Hormuz. This, of course, after the president said so in a Thursday's session. Friday's Fred Pleitgen joins us now on this story. Uh, Fred, it's a case of uh, he said, he said, Iran saying, in fact, that no, all our drones are accounted for here. In fact, it may have been the United States downing one of their own drones. Talk us to what we know here. Hmm. Well, it certainly, Julia, is another incident uh, that happened there in that key, obviously, waterway for, for the world's economy, for the world's oil shipping, uh, the Strait of Hormuz, when the U.S. was bringing pretty large aircraft slash helicopter carrier through there called the USS Boxer. Now, the U.S. says that the Iranians came very close to that ship with a drone and then a marine unit that was on board uh, their ship used electronic countermeasures to jam the drone and down it. Now, the Iranians, for their part, as you said, are saying that simply isn't true. But now for the first time, they are acknowledging that uh, perhaps they did fly a drone close to that ship. However, also ripping into U.S. President Trump. I want to read you a quote uh, from one of Iran's top spokespeople for the military. He says, quote, contrary to Trump's delusional and groundless claim, all drones belonging to the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz, including the one mentioned by the U.S. president, have returned to their bases safe and sound after carrying out their scheduled surveillance and control operations. And of course, Julia, 
you and I have been talking so much about the Strait of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf and all the tension that's been rising there. And this is just another incident that seems to be fanning those flames, fanning those tensions. Of course, we had those tanks on the tankers uh, that uh, the uh, U.S. blames on Iran. The Iranians are saying it wasn't them. The shooting down of a U.S. Uh, drone by the Iranians that they say infringe into their airspace. So really, it looks as though the U.S. and Iran really in a deadlock there. And I, you know, I've been through the Strait of Hormuz uh, on a U.S. aircraft carrier once, and I can tell you it is an extremely tight waterway where those two forces are in very, very close proximity. Julia? Absolutely, and pivotal to uh, the global oil industry, as you've pointed out, too. So everyone watching this very, very closely. And a sequence of events and Iran mm. denying involvement in all of them at this stage. There's been so many mixed messages, I think, whether it's from the U.S. government, from Iran here. What hopes at this stage of seeing Iran coming back to the table, uh, a fresh agreement over uh, nuclear development here in exchange for a relaxation of sanctions? Because ultimately, that's what mm. both sides would like. It's, it's how you bring them together. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the, the Iranians would certainly want uh, the relaxation of sanctions. And the U.S. obviously says that it wants guarantees uh, that Iran is not going to build a nuclear weapon. The Iranians, of course, for their side are saying, look, in general, they don't want to build a nuclear weapon. And of course, they have a nuclear agreement that the Iranians are still uh, a part of. I think right now at this point in time, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, for these sides to get back to the negotiating table, especially with incidents like the one that we saw yesterday with the USS Boxer taking place. But at the same time, you do have both sides saying they want to return to the negotiating table. Of course, you had President Trump saying uh, he's for uh, negotiations without preconditions. The Iranians are saying as long as those sanctions are on Iran, that is a precondition. Uh, and yesterday you had Iran's foreign minister, Jawad Zarif, come out and say, look, the Iranians would be interested in having an agreement with the United States where they would actually allow more visits to their nuclear sites, uh, also sites that so far have been undeclared. But what they want then is permanent sanctions relief from the United States. And that certainly seems like a pretty difficult uh, proposition there uh, for the U.S., Julia. Yeah, step too far for the White House, at least at this stage. Fred, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, let's move on now to our second driver. And as I mentioned, Microsoft on Cloud9, a blowout quarter for these guys based on the cloud division performance here. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, in fact, the cloud, Azure division, creating more revenue than any other segment for these guys. And this is the fastest growing segment. So they must be very pleased. Absolutely, Julia. You know, Microsoft, a company that many investors feared was dead money earlier this decade, continues to be one of the brightest stars in big tech. Now, we know that companies love to guide low and then just narrowly beat expectations. But Microsoft really had a monster beat here. Its revenue exceeded expectations by nearly a billion dollars. Obviously, that is very impressive. It speaks to not just the momentum here, but really the scale of Microsoft. And Satya Nadella's decision to bet big on the cloud continues to really pay off. Now, Microsoft's cloud, commercial cloud division increased revenue during the quarter by 39%, as you mentioned, to $11 billion. The Azure cloud unit by itself grew revenue by a very impressive 64%, which, believe it or not, is actually a deceleration from the prior quarter. Now, Microsoft also 
uh, guided really, really strongly as well. They're predicting double-digit increases in both revenue and operating income for the fiscal year that just began July 1. Wedbush Securities put out a, a research report saying that this is a, you know, an absolute blowout quarter um, across the board without any blemishes. And they actually predicted that the cloud party in Redmond may just be uh, getting started. Now, if you want to find a, uh, a negative here, and, and it's not easy to do that, it would be gaming. Um, video game unit revenue was down by uh, 10%. The Xbox, Xbox hardware revenue fell by 48% um, due to some tough comparisons from the year before. But, Julia, all in all, uh, clearly Wall Street is still very bullish on Microsoft because, one, of the cloud, and two, unlike some of these other big tech companies, Microsoft's antitrust headaches are, of course, in the rearview mirror. Yeah, they've been uh, done that and bought the T-shirt. Really taking the fight here to Amazon on the cloud, which is interesting. And on this point, I want to talk Jedi, not to be mistaken for any theme to do with Star Wars. We're talking Department of Defense, government contracts here, because President Trump has been asked about this a couple of times already this week, who he's going to award or who is going to get these contracts and whether or not the president himself will intervene. And it feels like an Amazon versus Microsoft face-off here. What do we know about this? That, that's right. So all these big tech companies would love to get a piece of this $10 billion Pentagon cloud contract. But really, it is just down to Amazon against Microsoft because IBM and Oracle have already been ruled out. Now, Amazon is the cloud leader, so you would think that it maybe would go to them, but we should not rule out Microsoft here. Uh, President Trump was asked about this uh, yesterday, and he told reporters he's going to look very closely at the bidding contract. He said some very impressive companies have been complaining about the bidding contract. He named um, Microsoft and IBM and Oracle. He did not name Amazon is one of the companies that have been complaining, though. So, Julia, you sort of wonder if Microsoft has a really big advantage here um, as far as this Jedi contract in the fact that it's not led by Jeff Bezos, who, of course, is a, uh, a, an adversary, uh, a rival of President Trump. Yeah, I expect lots of questions if they do get awarded this contract, of course, exactly for that reason. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, on to our next driver now. Boeing saying it will take a $5 billion hit. Charges related to the uh, 737 MAX jet crisis. The shares are up in uh, pre-market trading. Claire Sebastian joins me now. I mean, it's a whopping great sum, Claire, here. But for me, the assumptions being made by Boeing are almost a bigger issue here in that they're expecting these jets to be back in the sky in the fourth quarter of this year. Bold assumption at this stage. Yeah, bold, Julie, especially given how fluid this situation still is. But you're right, these are big numbers and the costs do seem to be mounting uh, for Boeing when it comes to the, 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 the 737 MAX crisis. So let's take a look at uh, the bill that they've talked about so far. That $4.9 billion charge, they say, mostly related to customer compensation and concessions. Add to that, uh, also announced yesterday, $1.7 billion in costs related to production delays. Uh, also, another uh, on top of another billion they announced in the first quarter. And they didn't even mention yesterday, Julia, the $100 million fund they've set up to compensate customers. Uh, so the numbers really are growing. But as I said, this is extremely fluid. I think it's telling that the company hasn't uh, updated its 2019 guidance yet. They said again yesterday they're not ready to do that. We've got a lot of wild cards. They haven't presented the software fix to the FAA yet. The Boeing official has told CNN to expect that around September. Uh, and, and, and after that, there are even more uncertainties. What will the global regulators do? Will they follow in the footsteps uh, of the FAA? So there's a lot of uncertainty uh, around these 
these forecasts. But I think the reason why we see this stock up today is that Boeing is trying to get out in front of this to, to kind of ring fence the risk around this problem and, and to reassure investors that it's doing that. Yeah, you make a great point. I mean, it was down a couple of uh, percentage points yesterday. I guess that's the only adjoinder here. But to your point, I think, as well, the, the estimates here from analysts are so wild at this stage. No one can really predict when they're going to get these jets back up into the sky. So the fact that they're actually making provisions, taking charges and saying, look, even if we're going to you know, pay out this money over numerous years, um, we're kind of going to try and get in front of it and, and take a big hit now. Yeah, I think that's a reflection of also how they expect to compensate customers. I don't think it'll just be cash payouts. It'll also be in the form of uh, potentially reduced uh, price tags for the planes they haven't delivered yet, reduced uh, costs of parts and perhaps even services. So there's a lot of different ways that they can do that. But look, the airlines are struggling. The timelines have been slipping as to when uh, the the flight cancellations are going to end. The U.S. airlines have pushed out their cancellations now to the beginning of November. We've also heard recently from Ryanair in Europe that said it might even have to close some bases because delays uh, in these deliveries. The airlines, of course, don't forget, are also facing pressure from the pilots, many of whom are are flying these 737 MAX planes and haven't really been working uh, since the the planes were grounded in March. They have also launched some class action lawsuits. So there's there's a lot of kind of trickle-down pressure here, and I think that's why uh, there is uncertainty around these forecasts, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right, it's 50 years since the first man walked on the moon, and there are celebrations planned at NASA's Mission Control in Houston. Rachel Crane is there for us. Rachel, what a time to be there, to be part of the celebrations. Talk to me what's planned and and what it feels like. Well, Julia, first I want to just stop and pause and revel in the beauty of this incredible rocket behind me. Now, this is a Saturn V. It's the same kind of rocket that flew all the Apollo missions and, of course, put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon nearly 50 years ago. And while it's on its side right now, when standing upright, it's as tall as a 35-story building. So just to give you a little bit of perspective. And when it was fully fueled up, it weighed over 6 million pounds, had over 7 million pounds of thrust. But of course, most of the rocket was comprised of fuel. The bit that was really important when they were in space was this end bit right here, the brown portion being the command module where the astronauts were housed. And of course, this week uh, is a time that people all over the world are taking stock of this incredible achievement because, of course, this was a huge win for NASA and America. It really was um, an achievement for humanity. So people from all over the globe, in fact, 45 different countries are coming here to Johnson Space Center to take part in the celebrations, the galas, all of the events surrounding this historic achievement. Julia? Absolutely. And of course, what we've seen in in just the last few weeks is the United States once again saying, look, we're going to put a woman on the moon. We're going to get to Mars. The United States, I think, back here wanting to lead the charge to get us back up into space and not take anywhere near 50 years to at least have the conversation and get doing it. That's right. Uh, You know, NASA recently announced uh, the Artemis program was going to be moved up from 2028 to 2024. So if all goes to plan, uh, a man and a woman will be on the moon in just a couple of years. So a lot of excitement surrounding, you know, the new commercial space race, but also NASA's own plans to once again return to the moon and use that as a stepping stone to get to Mars. That's always been NASA's uh, ultimate objective to get to the red planet. So um, once again, you know, an incredible, exciting week for 
people to relive the historic achievement of going to the moon uh, originally in 1969, nearly 50 years ago, but a lot to look forward to in the near future. Julia? Absolutely. And what an incredible backdrop to Rachel Crane. I'm very jealous of you today. Um, have fun. Now, speaking of rockets and moonshots, I could be heading to space as a journalist. At least the administrator of NASA didn't say no when I practically begged him and didn't really give him a choice, actually. That full interview coming up in around 30 minutes' time. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. The German Chancellor says she stands in solidarity with the United States Congresswoman targeted by Donald Trump's racist tweets. Angela Merkel says she's distancing herself from the attacks and said America's strength lies exactly in the fact that people from different backgrounds come together as one nation. CNN has learned the game plan U.S. House Democrats plan to use for Robert Mueller's upcoming testimony. My apologies. They've learned the game plan House Democrats plan to use for Robert Mueller's upcoming testimony. The focus will be on several instances of potential obstruction of justice by the U.S. president, as laid out in the special counsel's sweeping report. Democrats will also press Mueller on contacts the Trump campaign had with Russia. Police in Japan have identified the man suspected of starting a devastating fire that killed 33 people. They say he suffers from an unspecified mental illness. He's now sedated in hospital but is not under arrest. The deadly fire at Kyoto's animation in the country's worst mass killing in almost 20 years. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But up next, ban or a bargaining tactic. Our exclusive interview with Huawei's chief security officer. And AB InBev canning its IPO for now, but getting a cash injection by selling its Austrian, Australian business for billions of dollars. Stay with us here on First Move. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where we are looking at a solidly higher open for U.S. stock markets this morning. Blue chips and tech names like Microsoft, of course, looking set to outperform the debate. Of course, continuing over what kind of rate cut we get from the Federal Reserve at the back end of this month. The debate will continue, I'm sure. We'll talk it through in a second. But remember, the ECB is also meeting the European Central Bank next week. Do they give more guidance on stimulus? South Korea, South Africa, Indonesia, all cutting rates this week. Global stimulus is the phrase. Microsoft shares, as I just mentioned, set to be higher, up almost 3% pre-market, so we'll keep an eye on those two. Lots to discuss. Fortunately, Julian Emmanuel joins us now, Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist at BTIG. Julian, great to have you with us. Always great to be here. So you said months and months and months ago, way before anybody else, that you thought the Federal Reserve would cut rates twice this year. And now everybody agrees with you, I think. Some perhaps thinking a bit more here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing that three months later, we find ourselves almost seeming hawkish uh, (laughs) when people thought we were kind of crazy back in March and April. Um, We think actually that sentiment is a bit overdone. 50 basis points on July 31st would be a very difficult message for the markets to understand. Well, I mean, they're starting to price it. And obviously we had the uh, confusion yesterday over some rhetoric from the Federal Reserve. We spoke to Jim Bullard um, of the St. Louis Fed yesterday, and he, even he as a dub said, look, 50 basis points, half a percentage point in July is overdone at this stage. What's the market thinking here? Oh, the, the market is sort of addicted to this notion of, uh, of easy money. And the reality is, is that a rate cut here 
is not a vaccination against a global pandemic. It's a flu shot, okay? It's basically something to keep the economy on track to help buoy sentiment and, you know, sort of fight off the psychology that a flat yield curve is, is putting in people's minds with regard to a recession. recession. Right. We talked about that too, but actually one of the other things that stood out for me was just how bearish, how concerned he was about trade and the idea that even if we get a U.S.-China trade deal this year, it doesn't mean the trade tensions go away either between the United States and China or other countries. As far as they're concerned, trade tensions are here to stay. Well, you have to go back to last year to fully understand that. The fact is the Fed made an incorrect calculation that a trade war would be inflationary. It has never been inflationary. It is not inflationary. What tends to happen is that the volume of activity slows down. Right. And in this case, what you're seeing is global supply chains being disrupted. And those things don't fix themselves in weeks or months. They take quarters. So the residual effect, even if you do get a deal, goes on into 2020. There's a lot of adjustments. So talk to me about your S&P 500 target, the 3,000 target this year, because I mentioned just coming into this interview, it's not just about the Federal Reserve supporting the economy and the markets inadvertently. Other countries are now using the opportunity to cut rates, emerging markets, Europe, lots of central banks here are stimulating. Well, we think about our 3,000 price target a lot in the way we thought about our Fed call. When we stuck to our guns in January right. at the depth of the market, people thought we were a bit crazy. Now we're here. From our point of view, you've priced in Fed easing perhaps too much. The nice thing is that earnings are actually coming in better than we expected, which is a positive and bodes well for the rest of the year. But look, we've got a lot of geopolitical risk on the table, uh, whether it's in Washington talking about the budget and the debt or Brexit or what have you. And so for us, it's a time for the market to pause and figure out where those risks are headed. So are you saying that your 3,000 target assumes everything goes smoothly on that front? I mean, Brexit's one you just threw in there. I mean, we don't know at this stage. And you could be increasingly alarmed again at the risk of perhaps some kind of messy no-deal scenario later on this year. Are you assuming that all those risks don't materialize and then the market can get to 3,000. Well, what we're assuming is that you sort of have what you've had for weeks and months and almost years, if you're talking about Brexit, a kick the can situation. But to realistically think that all of these issues will go unresolved one way or the other into the end of the year is probably naive. So what we've said is, you know, if things break the right way on these issues, you could overshoot that, that target to as high as 3,400. But we really want to see how things develop. And investors, sort of the lack of activity in recent weeks, they're sending that same message. I mean, you also said, look, a pause at this stage just to sort of consolidate, consider where we are at this stage and what we know and what we ultimately don't know here. You also said in terms of an investor mindset, you, you say to clients, look, if we see a 10%, a 15% pullback, you're a buyer. You're going to buy on dips, as we call it. Explain to me how we could see a 10% or a 15% correction to even have to be in a position where you're looking at then loading up again. Sure. Well, if we've learned anything over the last two years is that volatility swings and ebbs and flows. And in fact, if you look at the fourth quarter of last year, 
there wasn't really that much of a fundamental rationale for the market to go down almost 20%. And so from that point of view, what we tell people is try and take emotion out of it. If, if at 3,000 in the S&P 500, you feel like your stocks are, you've got a little bit too much exposure, trim back to the sleeping point and find yourself, because it's worked for 10 solid years, down 10, down 15%. You shouldn't be defensive. You should find a way to play offense. And that's the key. Julian Emmanuel, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show and happy Friday. The Market Open is next. move lots of uh, happy faces and shouting and clapping here this morning at the uh, New York Stock Exchange. We have liftoff for the final session of this week. U.S. stocks making gains as we expected. The first week of earnings, 10% of the S&P 500 reporting, of course, this week. Earnings right now beating by almost 7% so far, a higher rate than uh, over the past three years. But remember, as we keep reiterating, expectations had been materially lowered coming into this earnings season. One stop we are watching, though, AB InBev's shares are surging as the company announced it's selling its Australian business for some $11 billion, just days, of course, after abandoning its massive Asian IPO. Haddis Gold is on the story for us. Haddis, talk about the uh, sale of the Australian business, a lower growth business, so good news for the company, but also some hints, perhaps, that re-establishing that Asian IPO. Talk us through it. Yeah. Yeah, Julia, if you're a fan of Foster's or Victoria's Bitters uh, in Australia, then they're about to get a new owner in Asahi, the Japanese beer maker, who is buying that part of AB InBev for about $11.3 billion. Now, this comes on the heels of that failed IPO for AB InBev of a stake of its Asian business. They pulled that after some investors, after investors clearly didn't embrace the pricing, the valuation of that stake. And it would have been probably the biggest IPO of 2019. So it was big news that it was pulled, but now we suddenly see the sale. Now, AB InBev said that Asahi had tried to buy uh, this part of AB InBev before, but had failed to do so. But this sale, Julia, is all about trying to get down that more than $100 billion debt that AB InBev have after a decades-long acquisition spree. So for them, that's where this money is going to go through, just helping to pay down the debt. Now, for Asahi, this deal actually makes them a very big brewer. Now, AB InBev is still the world's biggest brewer. But for Asahi, this is good for them, makes them one of the biggest brewers. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that AB InBev is still exploring plans to actually sell off more parts of its Asia business. So that is one thing to keep in mind. And although the IPO was pulled last week, AB InBev is signaling that it could possibly return to the idea, of course, provided that it can be completed, as they said, at the right valuation, Julia. Yeah, as you point out, they're the key here, getting that big balance sheet under control. Haddis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, we are going to take a quick break here on First Move once again. But up next is that the U.S. Congress moves to strengthen its power over Chinese tech giant Huawei. We bring you an exclusive interview with the Chinese tech company's chief security officer. Up next, don't make a move.
The U.S. Congress is moving to block President Trump from unilaterally relaxing restrictions on Huawei. It's introduced a bill to require a vote in both the House and Senate before curbs on the Chinese tech giant are eased. The timing here is key. The Wall Street Journal reported Wednesday the trade talks between the two countries are at a standstill over Huawei. Despite denials of this by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, Congress fears the ban could be used as a bargaining chip with Beijing. Joining me now is Andy Purdy, Huawei's chief security officer. He's also worked at the heart of U.S. government. He was a member of the White House staff that drafted the U.S. cybersecurity strategy back in 2003. Then he went to the Department of Homeland Security, where he led the National Cybersecurity Division. Andy, fantastic to have you with us. You've seen both sides. You now work for Huawei. You've worked at the heart of uh, D.C. and uh, obviously the, the government operations there as far as cybersecurity is concerned. What do you make of the moves by Congress, not only to restrict the president, but also to restrict patent sales as well for your company? Well, I think President Trump is struggling uh, with his administration trying to protect America from voices inside the U.S. and outside. And I think given the United States' vulnerability in cyberspace, I think the government's bending over backwards to make America safe but they're going too far. We are going to have a direct impact on American customers of Huawei, and we spent $11 billion last year buying from American companies. And if we are forced to go our way, we'll be okay, but in the long term, I don't know that Huawei will come back, and I think America will be hurt. I mean, you've said it could cost $30 billion for Huawei if we ultimately see this ban enforced. Is that right? Well, we are projecting up to a $30 billion reduction in our projected revenue growth if we're not allowed to buy from American companies, Um, which, as I said, we're not sure if the impact's going to be that great, but we know the impact on American jobs is going to be very significant, and it's going to affect the whole global uh, ecosystem. I mean, you said $11 billion there is what you bought in, in 2018, so we can quantify the impact. There are companies, obviously, Intel, Qualcomm, Google, that have felt the impact as a result of this restrictions. But the Washington Post today is reporting that the White House is pulling those big tech giants together to talk to them, arguably because they're saying to the government, look, um, this is going to impact our business. It is impacting our business. Do you know anything about that meeting, if that meeting's taking place? Well, we just learned about it in the press accounts today. Um, It's not surprising. Uh, We would have expected and expect that our suppliers would be reaching out to government. Because if we're going to be allowed to buy from American companies, it's because American companies want to sell to us, not because we want to buy from them. What conversations are you having with suppliers? Are they saying that to you? Look, we trust your technology. Well, we're talking about two different things. They are our suppliers, so they certainly have no question that what they want to sell us is not going to put America at risk. So and they're they not taking be... a view. That's right. And so the, the real controversy is about our customers in the United States and around the world. And, and we believe their mechanisms, like Nokia and Ericsson use, to address the risk that provides assurance and transparency. Nokia is an interesting one because they have a joint venture with Shanghai Bell. That's wholly owned by the Chinese government. I mean, we could argue that Nokia isn't a Chinese company and therefore that the treatment here is different. But you're saying the treatment here of Nokia and Huawei is unfair. Is that what you're saying? Well, what we're saying is that blocking Huawei is not going to make America safer. And there are mechanisms that need to be put in place to to make America safer. The bad guys can hack into Nokia's networks, 
Ericsson's networks, and so forth. So we need to make sure there are mechanisms so that whatever products are used in the United States have gone through independent government monitored evaluation to make sure we're safe. And remember, the telecom operators are the ones who operate the networks. And there's close oversight of them as well. They manage the risk effectively. I mean, the bad guys here in, in the United States view is China. And I guess their argument would be China's far more likely to tap into Huawei's networks or use Huawei's equipment than it is to go to Nokia because you guys won't put your hands up and say, hey, China's asked us to hand over this information or as to allowing, allow us to create backdoors, because if you did, you'd, you'd kind of go out of business. Well, there's some who think that the, one of the reasons is that the United States government wants to easily be able to hack into equipment around the world, and perhaps they fear we can't do it. But in terms of making America safer, there are mechanisms we can use to show that, that America is safe. Are the Chinese government talking to you about those risk mitigation techniques? And what are they specifically? Because we're talking about two things. We're talking about um, hardware that Huawei produces, phones, laptops, for example, or 5G networks. Because what we're seeing in Congress is them saying, actually, if we allow Huawei to be involved in the United States development of 5G networks, they could ultimately be paralyzed by a bad actor, China, acting through your company. Well, the, the people speaking out either don't know or refuse to understand the way the telecommunication networks work. You look at the UK. The four UK operators have said that despite some issues with our software that we're going to improve, they feel very comfortable using Huawei products because the telecom operators help make the various countries safe. But the UK separated it into core and non-core, and they're now pushing the, the next prime minister to make a decision on this. Uh, the United States is saying there is no difference between core and non-core as far as Huawei is concerned. You are vulnerable to demands, orders of passing over information, of spying from the Chinese government. Well, Are you, can you resist that? As a, as a Chinese company, can you resist that? Oh, absolutely. How? The, 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 because, we'll use the example, if we don't have data, we can't be forced to turn it over. And the fact is there are mechanisms you can put in place that can guarantee that whatever data we touch will be perfectly auditable and visible, so we're not able to access the data without it being known. And secondly, and this is a potential risk with all the equipment of all the vendors, there are mechanisms to test the products to look for backdoors. And that's what the principal deputy, the director of national intelligence said. She said, I can test for that. Is it credible, though, to assume that there will be no backdoors introduced, that when the testing takes place, that, that you as a company under the orders of China, Chinese government, don't provide samples that have no backdoors? Well, is it possible to work around these? I don't assume anything. I believe we have to not trust anybody, that we have to make sure there are mechanisms that are proven effective to make sure America is safe. And particularly with the role of the operators, the, the, the AT&Ts and Verizons of the world, we can be sure that we're going to be safe. Is the U.S. government trying to verify this? Or are you just in a situation where you feel like you're caught in the middle of a far bigger battle over a trade war and actually the people that could verify could look at what you're offering here to mitigate the risks? doing it because they don't want to get involved at this moment given the geopolitical concerns? Well, I think the experts know the mechanisms that can be successful. And part of our point is block Huawei if you must, but let's do what's necessary to test all the other products because the bad guys can hack through those. Let's make sure we're safe. Do you have government workers or those that have connections working at Huawei? Because this is an accusation from uh, Professor Balding who works at um, Fulbright University in, in Vietnam. He said he's got and found connections between your 
workers and Chinese government entities. Well, look at American corporations and the connections between former and current military people in terms of American companies. So my point is, it doesn't matter who the employees are. We need real mechanisms that can prove that that yes? it, we're not subject to the undue influence is of the China government. Is that a yes, government. though? Do you have government workers working at Huawei? No. No. Categorically, no. Every company in China, whether foreign or domestic, has to have a committee of the Communist Party. Of course. But they have no operational control over us, just as they don't have any operational control over Nokia operating in China. Okay, so you can separate the Chinese government from your operations. Who owns Huawei? It's privately owned. It's workers. It's a union of workers. The workers. We have 97,000 workers. Each May we get our, our, uh, our, our distribution. And we're just like a privately owned company in the United States in the same respect. But not influenced by the Chinese government in any sense. We are not controlled or influenced by the Chinese government in any sense. We are proud to be a privately owned company and we operate that way. And we maintain our distance from the United States government and other governments. How do we overcome the suspicions right now, the concerns? How do you do that? Because there will be people watching here on an international audience that are looking at, at Huawei at this moment, whether it's looking to buy a mobile phone or a laptop and saying, what operating system is this going to be able to use going forward? What's your message about the efforts that Huawei's trying to take here to say, look, we aren't influenced by the government. We won't be a problem for, for, for U.S. technology going forward. How do you convince people? Well, it's three things. First of all, let's not throw the baby out with a bathwater. We should be allowed to buy all, most if not all, of the $11 billion in products. So let's protect American companies. Secondly, we're not allowed to sell our mobile devices through the carriers. No one has ever indicated what the security risk. We're on the Android platform. If there's a problem with our phones, we need to raise the security of the entire Android platform. And regarding our customers, look at the success of our company. Does it matter to us how much money we make in the United States? Not really. But we have 40 rural customers serving rural America who depend on us for high-quality service. And we want to help protect those customers. Does your company survive if America cuts you off? Can what? it survive? Can Huawei survive if America cuts oh, you off? Absolutely. The, the worst projection is that it might cause a decrease of, of, of our increase in revenue of $30 billion this year. We'll be fine. We're not publicly traded. The leadership's not going to get kicked out. We're going to be fine. But is America going to be fine? Andy, fantastic to chat to you. We'll get you back, no doubt. Andy Purdy there. Thank you so much. All right, on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we'll speak to the man who's making sure we are moonbound again and really soon. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Saturday will mark 50 years to the day that a man from Ohio took a step that would change the way humanity views its place in the universe. Even now, the idea of a person walking on the moon is spellbinding. So why has it taken us so long to seriously discuss returning? Well, that's what I asked NASA's administrator, Jim Bridenstine. In the 1990s, NASA had an effort to go back to the moon and on to Mars. It was right. called the Space Exploration Initiative. Uh, but it took too long and it cost too much and administrations changed, priorities changed, and the program got canceled. Then in the early 2000s, we had the, the vision for space exploration. Again, it took too long. It went over budget. Um, and ultimately, the administration changed and it got canceled. This is why President Trump and Vice President Pence, President Trump created the National Space Council and he put Vice President Pence as the chairman of that council. And they have said, we want to accelerate the path. Why? 
Because if instead of a, a 10-year program, yeah. if it's a five-year program, it reduces the political risk. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to go to the moon sustainably. In other words, we're going to stay with international partners, with commercial partners, utilize the resources of the moon. We discovered in 2009 that there's hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the south pole of the moon. Well, water ice represents water to drink, air to breathe, and in fact, rocket fuel. H2O, if you crack it into hydrogen and oxygen, that's the same rocket fuel that powered the space shuttles. It's the same rocket fuel that will power the space launch system, which is gonna take our astronauts back to the moon within five years. And you're saying not only that, but on the moon and then use that effectively as a launch pad for our progress to Mars. To Mars, that's right. The president has been clear. He wants the agenda to be Mars. And so what we're using the moon for is a proving ground. The glory of the moon is number one, we can learn how to live and work on another world for long periods of time. And it's a three day journey home. Apollo 13 taught us that if something goes wrong on the way to the moon, you can make it home. Yeah. If something like that happened on the way to Mars, it would be over. The challenge with Mars is that Earth and Mars are only on the same side of the sun once every 26 months. So when you go to Mars, you have to be willing to stay for long periods of time. The moon is where we can learn how to do that so that ultimately we can make that journey to Mars. They say in space that no one can hear you scream. And while the risks we face there are clearly not as terrifying as the ones Sigourney Weaver dealt with in things like Alien, that does mean they are not serious, whether it's space debris or potential threats to satellite communication. I asked Jim to explain. Because space is so existential to our existence, we talk about banking. Um, every banking transaction in the United States requires a timing signal from GPS. And by the way, that's not just the United States, it's quite frankly globally in the, in, in the industrialized world. Right. The timing signal from GPS. Um, but the, the power, the electricity on the power grid requires, the regulation of the flows requires a timing signal from GPS. The flows of data on terrestrial wireless networks for your cell phone requires a timing signal from GPS. So here's the Satellites. challenge. That's right. So some of the enemies of the United States, I should say some of the competitors, are developing capabilities that could destroy those satellites. And that it's anti-satellite missiles, it's co-orbital anti-satellite capabilities, and if they were to do that, it would be an existential threat to the United States of America. Imagine, no banking in America, no milk in the grocery store. Uh, within, within, within days, there would be chaos. Um, that's the threat here that has to be mitigated, which is why the president of the United States, President Trump, is so focused on the Space Force. And I will tell you, I'm a big advocate of that. I have been for a long time, even when I was in the House of Representatives. He's doing the right thing with the Space Force because we have to make sure the enemies of the United States know they will not get an advantage by destroying space. I mean, there are people that would look at this and say, look, you're the the moon might have not have changed that much over the last 50 years, but planet Earth has, and that's something NASA is keen to take advantage of, putting international cooperation at the heart of its vision, even if the U.S. still leads the pack. We've had great astronauts from around the world on the International Space Station, um, and it's also true that we've had experiments on the International Space Station from 103 different countries. It is an amazing tool of diplomacy, um, and ultimately, we want to take what we've developed, what we've designed from an international diplomacy perspective, take it all the way to the moon. We now have a new program called Artemis, named after the twin sister of Apollo. Yes. 
And now when we go to the moon, unlike the 1960s, we have a very diverse, highly qualified astronaut corps that includes women. So we want to build what we call the gateway in orbit around the moon. Think of a small space station in orbit around the moon with our international partners and then have reusable landers that go back and forth to the gateway for a sustainable lunar presence, proving the technologies, proving the capabilities for an eventual mission to Mars. Is the first woman on the moon going to be an American though? Without question. <laughs> I will tell you, uh, I can tell you who I work for and the answer is yes. Um, and and the, the president and the vice president have been very clear. Um, we're going we're gonna to land on the moon within five years and uh, according to the vice president, he gave a big speech not too long ago by direction of the president and he said the next man and the first woman on the south pole of the moon will be Americans. It's also true though that in the president's space policy directive one, he wants to go with international partners. The reality is uh, we're kind of the, the gorilla in the room because our budget is, is, is large, but we want to make sure that all of our partners are with us and in fact we want to grow the partnership. I'm not an astronaut, but if you need any volunteers, I'm putting my hand up right now. <laughs> I, I love space. I think we could arrange that. Great. Remember, we now have commercial crew and commercial crew enables all kinds of opportunities for people that would not be your traditional astronauts at NASA. So there very well could be a, a seat for a journalist. Where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> love. Thank, Thank you. you. He didn't say no. No, if you want to see a moonshot, take a look at the Dow from the day men landed on the moon till today. The Dow was trading at just over 800 points in mid-July of 69. Since then, the Dow has risen at more than 3,000%. Well-known companies like IBM, Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble were already in the Dow, but the blue chip average also contained long-forgotten stocks like Anaconda Copper and Swift & Company, who... The late 60s was also the height of the Nifty 50 investment strategy. It was a basket of stocks that analysts urge investors to buy and hold forever. Some like McDonald's and Pepsi have done well over the years. But if you bought and held some Nifty 50 companies like Eastman Kodak, you would not be feeling so nifty today. They went bankrupt in 2012. Ouch. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.